Hi, I'm Nikki from Teaching Autism and welcome to the Autism and Special Education Community Podcast. Are you an autism or special education professional? Are you a teacher or therapist looking for support and new ideas? You may even be a parent, family member or carer. This podcast is perfect to help you find out more information, support and get some of your questions answered. Hi and welcome back to the Teaching Autism and Special Education Community Podcast. Before we dive in today, I just want to remind you to head over to our website learningwithnikki.com or head over to the show notes to find out more about entering a three-day free trial to become a VIP member. Our VIP members get access to so many resources, sensory stories, art therapy lesson plans, strategy corner situations, sensory sessions, science activities, similar activities, social narratives, behavior management resources, life skills, and so much more. You will literally be blown away with all the things that our VIP members get. So head on over now, sign up for your three-day free trial, and you can get access to all those goodies for free. Back to today's episode and I am so excited to bring you Andy Putt. Andy Putt is a speech pathologist who specializes in autism assessments and evaluations. Today on the podcast we're going to be talking about what autism is. What are some of those early signs and how can you notice them? What age can we have diagnosis? What happens in an evaluation? And so much more. Without further ado let me introduce you Andy. Hi, Andy. Welcome to the Teaching Autism and Special Education Community Podcast. I am so excited to have you come on today. Could you tell my listeners just a little bit about who you are and what you do? Yes, definitely. So my name is Andy and I am a speech pathologist. I have been practicing for a little over 11 years um, and I specialize in autism, specifically autism assessments. Um, And I've been doing that for the last five years. Wow, that must be really interesting. I love how I just love the whole assessment and the whole evaluation thing. I'm really excited to just pick your brains for all the things today. (laughs) Well, I have a lot to say, so (laughs) I'm sure we'll hit a lot of things. I bet. And I found your stories on Instagram so helpful. That's why I wanted to bring you on today. But just before we dive straight in, just in case I have any new listeners or someone who's coming on here for some help, could you just give a brief overview of what autism is? Sure. So brief will be hard, but um, I will do my best. (laughs) Um, So when we look at autism, a lot of people think that it is super cut and dry, really easy, but it's actually really, really complex. Um, And so a lot of times people will think of, you know, just the stereotypical signs. um, And so I'll kind of hit some of that. But also I want to talk about the broader spectrum. Um, But regardless of what um, level or level of support you might need, um, I like to categorize it into three different areas. Um, And so the first one would be differences with language. And so um, a lot of these kids will have that delayed language. Some kids, their language will be developing on time, but just might present a little bit differently. Um, Another area would be socialization. And so under that area could be how they use eye contact or how they're able to participate in a back and forth conversation, um, how they are able to play with other kids or how they're interacting with adults. Um, And then the third area is really two areas, um, but it's called the repetitive or restricted interests. 
And in here can be, you know, those preferred topics that some kids have, or it could be um, like lining up toys. You know, we hear that one a lot. Um, so anything repetitive, it could be repetitive play as well. Um, and also would be sensory differences. So a lot of times when we talk about kids on the spectrum, we talk about how they experience, um, just their sensory experiences are much different than a typical person. That was perfect. Thank you so much. And like you say, it's so hard to do a brief overview <laughs> of all really this. There's no brief about it. And I like how you split it into those areas. And I think that will be really helpful if any parents are listening, because I know it can be so frustrating when you're waiting for the whole assessments and diagnosis, but there's really so much to it. Like you said, it's really not a cut and dry black and white assessment that we can do. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah. And I mean, sometimes it really is. So, you know, it could be really easy to determine if a child is on the spectrum or not um, sometimes. And then sometimes I could spend hours and days and just really still struggle making that differential diagnosis. Definitely. And what I've learned over the years is you're never going to have two children or individuals the same, regardless of the diagnosis. You sort of never have them the same, like similar, maybe but never mm -hmm. the same. So it's really hard then to try and have something to go off when you're looking for someone who is maybe masking those traits as well. Mm -hmm. Right. And so, and that's when you see the teachers, oh, well, it can't be autism because I knew this other child who was on the spectrum and this is just isn't at, like them at all, you know, or a parent might know their friend might have a child on the spectrum or even a sibling. You see a lot when the parents are like, no, this one can't have autism. And I'm like, I know it's the same. It, they have similar traits, but those traits can present so differently. It's amazing. I mean, it's just amazing when it, I'm like, there's three areas, <laughs> but then it's just so different. Definitely. And it still blows my mind now. When I first started the field, I was just like, you know, oh, maybe so-and-so is similar to so-and-so. I read online about autism. I know what to expect. And then when you go into that classroom, it like literally hits you in the face that you have no idea from those things you read really quickly online. Every child right. just, those traits, they display in so many different ways. And it's really hard sometimes to see the signs, maybe, especially for an early age. Mm -hmm, for sure. And I know that is something we're going to touch on today because you really specialize in the assessments. And I know you believe a lot in early intervention. Yes, that is. <laughs> if you ever hear anything about me, I'm probably saying something about earlier intervention or <laughs> assessments and when to get one um, or when to repeat one. So, yeah. <laughs> Those are great, though. I'm a huge, huge advocate for early intervention. But for people who are listening, I know that they can find it really difficult to understand what age you can diagnose someone with autism. So I think we'll start with what are some early signs that would maybe flag up possible autism for you? For sure. So I'll go, I kind of want to go over what a parent might notice first, because that's going to be different than things that I might notice at first. Um, and so usually what parents will report um, when they bring them in is usually delayed language. So that is most frequently a parent's only concern when they bring them in for evaluation. And then when I start asking them some more questions, I usually, the second thing that I hear is usually sensory differences. So a lot of like covering their ears 
or um, just becoming really dysregulated, like in crowds or um, just really easily overloaded because of sensory differences. Um, I would say those are probably the two most common things that a parent or maybe a preschool teacher might notice um, just from their regular interactions with kids. Those are great. And like you say, those are some of the signs that I always think of as some of those early indicators for me when I see it and I think, oh, there's a possibility. But I like what you say, how it's really going to be the families at home. And sometimes we don't always know about autism. Like I didn't know much about autism until I worked there. So I do really feel for some of these families who don't know what signs they're looking for or what those signs may mean as well. Mm-hmm. Right. And so some of the things that I might see, um, a really common one in kids on the spectrum is um, really difficulty um, engaging in play. And so where a parent might think that a child pushing a car back and forth is appropriate, like at a two-year-old's level, I might know that I would like to be seeing them crashing the cars or involving other people in their play or even putting a person on the car or pretending the car is something else. Um, so play actually develops incredibly fast <laughs> um, from that functional of just pushing the car to creating like play scenarios. Um, so I would say that's something that a parent, if they knew what they were looking for, could probably identify that a little bit quicker um, some of the other things could be um, difficulty with change in routine. And so we hear this a lot. A lot of the times the people will talk about, oh, well, he's lining toys up, but he's not mad if I mess them up. <laughs> um, and that's one of those stereotypes. So a lot of kids on the spectrum do line things up. Some of them do get upset when their line is messed up, but a plenty of them do not get upset if their lines are messed up. So um, some of those repetitive behaviors or insistence on routines is it can be really hard for parents to really tease apart because there really is a fine line between typical and atypical. Um, and so some of those more fine uh, characteristics are just, they're just hard to see. Definitely. And I so know what you mean where we have this sort of stereotype of certain things with uh, children and students with autism, very much the lining up and people instantly think any sort of lining up must be autism. There's a lot of stereotypes and I know we're going to touch about that later today in this podcast mm -hmm. too. But my next question is, I know you were talking about that play developing and even at sort of two years old, you can start to look for those signals maybe that something maybe isn't developing as maybe a typical child would but when mm -hmm. can you really start to notice those signs because I know some people worry it's too early some people worry it's too late when would you say those signs start sure so and this can be a little bit tricky because a lot of like I've said a lot of things are typical until they're not. So a lot of the things that kids on the spectrum do, they're really not that strange. Kids just experience them a little bit differently. And so one of my examples that I like to give is um, like flapping. We talk about this a lot. We see kids on the spectrum who are flapping. Um, a lot of times, typical kids can do some flapping as well, um, especially when they're younger. Um, sometimes when they're excited. So my son is four and sometimes when he is really excited, he might do a little flap. 
Um, usually when we're talking about atypical flapping, it's more they are gaining something like a sensory experience. So it feels good. We could see some tension that goes along with it, or it just might be happening a little bit more frequently than expected. Um, but I always tell parents, you know, what, what might you do if you like won a whole lot of money? <laughs> you, I would probably jump up and down and wave my arms, <laughs> you know? <laughs> and so I think that I truly think that they just experience some of their emotions um, a little bit more than we do. And so when you see the happy flapping, when they're excited, I think that they are just really excited. And then they get that sensory input with the waving and that movement. And it's just how they like just show that expression. So those signs develop, they do develop very early. So the research is saying that Autism can be accurately identified by 18 months, um, and it does recommend that that evaluation be by somebody who is familiar with that age. Um, and for me personally, I would want somebody who regularly does autism evaluations, um, and by regularly, I would say several a week. Um, so if I was looking at getting my 18-month-old uh, diagnosis, I would definitely want to be sure it's with somebody who is familiar with that age. Um again, and autism evaluation. So kind of like the double, which is going to be, sometimes can be hard to find. Definitely. And like you say, it's really important as well to go to someone who's doing it on a regular basis because we're human. And if you're not doing it for maybe a few months, things can get really easily missed, overlooked or misinterpreted. So I do think it's really important to find that someone specializing in that age and doing it, like you say, on a regular basis. Right. Yeah. And so, and then the other thing that I want to say with that is along with that research, there also is something that definitely needs to be talked about. And it would be the kids who can be evaluated. They have some characteristics at a young age, but it's just not clear until they're seven, eight, nine years old. So I will always, always recommend if you have an initial evaluation when a kid is younger than six, I would recommend, even if it's a no, even if you have no concerns, to go ahead and do another evaluation after they're eight, um, because we know that some of those kids can kind of fly under the radar. They can meet those milestones. They can do what they need to do until that certain point. Definitely. And I think it's really difficult as well for children that age. I worked with children three to seven most recently, and it's amazing to see sometimes how even I, knowing that they have autism, may overlook some of their traits just because of their age and not really maybe paying too much attention to it. And so that could be really easy for someone assessing them as well, because they do behave and act differently at home, in school, in different places. It's really difficult at that age. So like you say, I think going back for that second evaluation, just in case, just to be sure, it's worth the time invested in it. For sure. And also with the research, it was just, I wish I could remember who did it. It was just done, I think in 2019, um, it said that 80%, 85% of the kids that were evaluated and diagnosed at 18 months continued to have that diagnosis at three to four years. And then it was like, of the 15% that didn't, still 14% of them were having ASD characteristics which to me means those are going to be the ones that are identified when they're later. And only 1% went on to be determined as neurotypical. Um, so I just, I, I think that's amazing 
an amazing number considering that kids are not on average, they're not getting diagnosed until five or six years old. Um, it's just amazing that there's that difference, you know, so we definitely have a lot to learn. Evaluators have a lot to learn. Parents and uh, definitely pediatricians um, need to be a little bit more familiar with those early warning signs. Um, and then also, so in that same study, it said that a fourth of the kids that were not diagnosed with autism ended up qualifying for autism at a later age. So they were actually incorrectly identified as language delayed, but turns out it was autism. That That is amazing. Those stats are literally amazing, considering like you say how that sometimes, you know, they do go a lot of our children and individuals misdiagnosed. Those stats from such an early age are absolutely amazing for how high they are mm-hmm. and how accurate they are really, because you never really see stats that high for anything like that. Right. Especially when you think that when you're like, oh, they're so young and they're going to grow, they're going to change. And I always tell parents they are, they're going to grow, they're going to change and their autism characteristics will change with time. So when you have the three and four year olds who are flapping, you might not see that when they're six or seven, but you probably will see other characteristics that would still count as those repetitive behaviors or the sensory differences. It's just going to change as they get older. So they're not going to stay the same. And a lot of people think that that means they're outgrowing autism, but they're not. They're just growing and changing just like every single kid does. Definitely. I have loved, honestly, when you watch the children get older and you see them come in with new little bits to their personality as well. And it's still part of their autism, but it's nice to see them grow and you can see them taking in things around them and that leads them to try new things. And like you say, that may stop the flapping, but they may want to do something else because that is giving them the input that they need and just what they need from everyday life. Right. Right. And just like any other kid, you know, like they progress what my three-year-old did when he was three, he's probably not going to do those at eight, you know, so nothing is going to stay exactly the same. And I think sometimes that is hard for people to watch as they grow. And then they start questioning the diagnosis. Definitely. And I 100% agree with that because I've seen it so many times. And I know we did say that that research was from 18 months. Would you say that is the earliest age to sort of pursue an autism diagnosis? Yeah, I mean, I think it's possible at a younger age, but I don't, I would probably wait until maybe 16, 17, 18 months. Um, That would probably be at the earliest, I would say, um, most of these kids, their, their characteristics, they're not going to be noticed. So, um, you know, whereas if you have an older sibling who has autism, I think those are the kids who are more likely going to get those early diagnoses because their parents are on top of things. Um, whereas a typical kid, the parents just not concerned. They don't know what autism is. The preschool teachers at that age don't know what they're looking for. And so that's, and that's, that's really why we're not seeing kids get diagnosed until later. Definitely. And I still, I'm a huge believer in just everyone who works with children should get some sort of autism training just to get the sort of idea of it. Because sometimes people don't even know like anything about autism and then they can feel like totally thrown under the bus when they're trying to look for signs and how they can help I just think it would be really great where everyone who works with children just gets even half a day of just really basic training to look and recognize Mm -hmm. 
Right. And I, yeah, I mean, my whole thing is don't let go of your stereotypes. When you have that real basic, sometimes that will exclude so many kids because they're not doing those stereotypical things. Yes. And oh, those stereotypical things drive me insane. And I think (laughs) just from years of working in a school with students with autism and the first thing people ask you is, oh, those are the kids that are really good with numbers or (laughs) those are the kids who have the best memory. And I'm like, oh, just don't. (laughs) Right. But back to the diagnosis process. This can be really scary waters, especially if maybe you're a first time parent, maybe you're a parent who, like you say, was unaware of autism. So what is the Mm -hmm. process for diagnosis and who provides the diagnosis? Sure. So it really will depend. Most often you would go see a um, developmental pediatrician. Um, When I do my evaluations, I do team based and I'm probably a little biased since that's what I do. Um, But I do prefer that because then you have multiple people looking at the same child and everybody has to agree. So it's almost like having multiple opinions or, you know, second opinions or third opinions all in one evaluation. Um, But I would say usually it's easiest to get in with just one person and that would be the the developmental pediatrician. Um, And so what you would want to do or what you would really want to look for when you're getting an evaluation is you definitely want the person to listen to the parent. Okay. So sometimes we do have parents and they have no concerns and I'm like, but I know like like right now what they're doing right now, do they do that at home? You know, when a parent will be like, no, never. And I'm like, okay, but what about this thing that they're doing right now? Um, you know, so sometimes parents really, I mean, they are, we are so, I'm, I am guilty of this. We are so blind when it comes to our own children. Um, but a lot of, that's not always true, but a lot of the times that is true. Um, but we definitely want someone who is listening to a parent. And if a parent is saying, oh, they do this at home, I would want somebody who would look at my videos of my, of me showing, you know, here's what they do at home. I want them to see what the parent sees. So Definitely you want somebody who's listening to the parent. Um, I would encourage if it's at all possible to have information from teachers in that as well. Um, And observation, play-based, I think is huge. And a lot of the evaluations that are standardized are play-based. So you'll hear a lot about the ADOS, which is probably um, like the gold standard right now for autism assessments. Um, it's probably, it's definitely not probably, it is definitely my favorite. Um, it's the one that I do most frequently, um, because I think it is, it's appropriate for a variety of kids. Um, and it is all play-based. And so I love that because there's not, it's nothing that is super, super hard for kids. And so I would say 95% of the time, the kids love it and they have a blast. And so anything that doesn't cause stress for the child, I think is definitely the way to go. Definitely. And there's just something a little less formal and stressful when it's play-based. It just makes everyone feel that little bit more comfortable in their surroundings. For sure. For sure. And especially the kid. I think it's a little bit easier for the parent, but I think parents are, you know, (laughs) always very uncomfortable because somebody's analyzing their child, Um, you know, but the kid doesn't know that. And so the kid is like, "Woo! there's bubbles and toys and trucks and fire trucks, you know, and so a lot of the things that they typically find to be fun 
Um, and so it's just, it's exciting for them and new and, um, and like I said, play-based. And so this person's here to play with me, you know, so a lot of positive social experiences in the ADOS, um, for most kids. Definitely. And I love that team approach that you have as well, because I just think that we can all bring something to the table and we can all look at things in a different way and see things differently as well. For sure. And so that's why I love it, because as a speech pathologist, I'm like, autism is a communication disorder. It is based in communication and social communication. And so it's always very interesting to me when um, a developmental pediatrician who doesn't have that training in language development is giving this and making these determinations without really analyzing the language component of autism, which is, like I said, one of the main three components is language. Um, and so I, that's why, again, I feel strongly team-based is the way to go. I a hundred percent agree. And I think it's just great where everyone can sort of complement each other's strengths, their weaknesses. Everyone can just come together and really help. And talking about that play-based I know it can be so stressful for parents and guardians when they go in, when they're even coming up to this evaluation. But just to put mm-hmm. minds at ease, what does happen during an evaluation and who might they see there? I know for you, it's a team, but is there mm-hmm. anyone maybe they could look out for or just to know what to sort of expect? So you you will have somebody who will be administering um, the evaluation, no matter if it's team-based or not. Um, and so you would definitely be with one other person. Um, there's two modules, actually three modules where a parent would be invited to attend. And I recommend if you can attend to definitely go and observe because it will help you to look at the results and understand what they're talking about. Um, for kids who are a little bit older and are more able to have conversations, the parents are not invited to attend to that because it's not a part of the assessment. Um, and so you, you won't always be invited, but for younger kids or kids with less language, the parents should be invited. Um, and then if it is a team-based, you might see an extra one or two people that are just sitting around taking notes. And that probably will make you feel a little bit nervous because we do, we write down everything. So every word that the child says, every time they make eye contact, every time that they make a gesture, you know, whatever it is that they're doing, we are writing it down. And I think a lot of times that just makes parents so nervous. Like, well, what are they writing down? What is she doing? (laughs) You know, because the parent doesn't really see that their child did anything. And then they see somebody writing something down. And I think that just adds to their anxiety of like what's going on. Definitely. And it's very much the fear of the unknown. And I don't know about anyone else, but when I start taking notes and I'm scribbling away, I probably look a little bit doolally in the corner and they're probably thinking, (laughs) oh my gosh, what is she writing a hundred miles an hour? But like you say, you just sort of making as many notes as you can for what you see, because it's important we have as much information as possible moving forward. Right, right. And so after we administer, we do what's called coding. And that's like when we score the assessment. And so the more that we write down, the better um, able we are to give a more accurate score. Because amazingly enough, even if we just see a kid for 45 minutes, it is really hard to remember everything that happened in that 45 minutes. So the notes are a good thing. Um, and it, it, they having good notes will help your child. Of course. And we always have so much on our plates that it's so easy to get things confused and mixed up or forgotten. So having those notes is just really helpful. 
Yes. Yes. And there, I mean, some days there were days when I did two or three evaluations in one day and like it just going back and talking, if I didn't have my notes, it would be very possible for me to confuse, you know, the two different kids that I tested. So gosh, I'm so reliant on, on my notes. Of course, me too. Even, you know, it's human nature, isn't it? We can't be expected to remember everything exactly how it happened. And having those notes, that helps us as well. That helps us move forward, helps you in your case with the evaluation and the assessments. So it's just really important to do them. And I know that when you said sometimes parents and family members can attend what tips do you have for them doing an evaluation? Because I know it can be a very scary time. It can be quite overwhelming. And sometimes human nature, we want to step in and help. Yes. And so we see this a lot. And what I tell parents at the beginning is this is and this is what helps them really um, to maintain and control their impulses, because we do we want to see our kids succeed. We want them to show everything that they can do. And so I will tell them, I do not expect your child to show me 100% of their skills during this assessment. So we are just going to acknowledge that right now. If there's something that they can do at home that they're not doing the assessment, tell me afterwards, because I do want to know that, but I do not want you to try to prompt your child. And the reason is if you, like, if I'm trying, like if I'm blowing up a balloon and I want them to say more or bigger or do something to communicate something to me, if the parent is, you know, understandably anxious and and nervous, they might say, say more, say blow, say blow it up. If the child then says it or does something that the parent says, they can't get credit for it. And so I always say, let them have the opportunity to show me their skills on their own. And it is just, it is so hard for parents. And I totally 100% understand because I just think when my son was little and he started to talk and my mom would come over and of course he just wouldn't do it. And I'd be like, Cam, say dog, you just said it 500 times, say it, you know? (laughs) Um, So I totally understand it, but I always tell them, I just, I can't give them credit. And I think that that really helps parents to start to kind of control themselves. Oh, I need them to show me what they can do and not what you can tell them to do, but what they can do on their own. Um, So that is definitely my biggest tip is just kind of sit back, try to not prompt them or tell them what to do. Um, If your child comes to you, brings you a toy to play with, definitely. I want you to respond to them. So don't ignore them. I just don't want you to like tell them what to do or try to encourage them to do something that they're not doing on their own because I really want to see what the child's able to do um, without that help. Definitely. That's a perfect tip to give. And I think, like you say, it's really hard because human nature we want to show off our children to everyone. Uh (laughs) So it's really hard. But like you say, just sitting back and trying to avoid that prompt. And although it's hard, it's going to be beneficial for them in the long run. Right, right, for sure. And then again, if it's if they're doing something at home that they're not showing these, tell me, I will add that to the parent interview. And that will be that will go into the report. I just can't say that I saw it, you know, Definitely. And I think that's a perfect tip for parents as well to go in with that sort of open mindset that they can have their say, just not right now and just not maybe prompting and trying to show it off in the middle of the evaluation. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So although that is really hard for some, maybe a lot of parents, 
it can be following the diagnosis that's the even harder part and not knowing maybe what to do, where to turn. What tips do you have for parents after they've had a diagnosis of autism? So I always encourage parents to find other parents who have been through the same thing. I think it's good to find somebody who is close to the same stage, so like new to the diagnosis, but then it's also really, really helpful to find somebody who has been there, done that, and they are, you know, they have accepted things and they have kind of learned the ropes of having a child that is autistic. And I just think that it can change the way that you look at things because how you feel and how you respond to the first initial hearing that word autism is very likely going to be completely different than how you're going to feel three or four years down the line. And that doesn't mean that your feelings at the, that at the beginning, it doesn't mean they were invalid because they were so valid and you felt all of them and you were not the only person to feel those feelings. I promise. Um, even when you feel guilty, like you have those bad thoughts, like, Oh, I wish he wasn't like this or, you know, whatever it is that you feel guilty about, you are not alone. And those feelings are valid. So just kind of find somebody who has experienced that, that you can really talk to somebody that understands it. Um, because then you're not going to have those comments that are where other people are saying, Oh, well, he doesn't look like he has autism or he doesn't act autistic. So maybe he's not, you know, those, some of those comments that people think are helping you, but really are not helpful. Definitely. And I think one of the worst things people can do when they're maybe trying to be supportive and help you through that time is say, well, he doesn't look autistic. And it's just, mm -hmm. I know they're doing it. They're trying to do it from a place of kindness and trying to support. But like you say, it doesn't always help, especially when you're going through that. But I know that a lot of parents set up great community groups as well, and they can be really great. I think it's just important people realize they're not on their own. And loads right. of other people go through this too every day. For sure. Yeah. And, and again, yeah, people have felt what you feel like you are not, I, I feel like it, a lot of people feel like it's so isolating, um, you know, or like they're the only one who has ever felt that who, or who has only gone through that because they just don't know of the other people, but there are those people and people are starting to talk about it openly now because autism really, it's not that different. It's not something to be ashamed of. It's not something to be quiet about. We're talking about it now and we are encouraging earlier intervention and we are encouraging accepting people for who they are. And I think that the more that we talk about that, the better this world will be for these kids. Definitely. And what I have loved the past few years is seeing how in general education settings, more and more teachers are really putting in that bit of effort to really teach about autism to children as well. And I just think that's a huge step forward as well. If we can teach children about it, because then they'll grow into adults who understand. Definitely. Definitely. There are some really great YouTube videos and great books that I love just sharing with my staff to say, Hey, let's talk about this and let's talk about differences. And we don't need to point out who it is that has autism. We just need to say there are, everybody is different in here. Everybody is different in here and it is okay to be different. Definitely. And we need to celebrate those differences as well. And I know you touched on about that early intervention and I know you're a huge believer in early intervention as am I. And why do you think that early intervention is so important for our children when they first get diagnosed or maybe even going through diagnosis? Sure. So 
Um, we know, well, and so in the United States, we talk about earlier intervention. And usually when we talk about that, we're talking about birth to three. Um, and the reason why getting that intervention that early is important is because the brain is much more flexible at that age. So we learn a whole lot. It is, um, flexible and able, capable of making changes that just kind of get set in stone at older ages. And so we see a lot more change when it is given in that early age, kind of like when you're, you know, you, we hear you can learn a second language easier when you're a child, um, than like as an adult right now, it would, (laughs) I would just say it would be nearly impossible for me to learn a second language right now. Um, (laughs) But when you see, when you see somebody who's exposed to it from birth, they can learn a new language in two years, you know? And so it's really amazing how flexible and how plastic the brain is at that early age. Um, And so that's why a main reason why we talk about that early intervention. When we have kids that are not, that aren't diagnosed until five, that's not it doesn't mean that they're not going to make progress, but it does mean that's still earlier. And so the earlier we can intervene, the earlier we can make some of those changes, really teach them how to use their language, how to look at social interactions differently. That's when we're going to see those changes a little bit earlier as well. And then when they make that huge jump from kids are just playing and um, reading for fun to reading to learn and playing and making all of those really complex social connections, they're going to have that better base to really start building from there. Definitely. That was perfect. I, I love early intervention. I'm a huge fan of it. And I just think, like you say, there are so many benefits, but one of the biggest, like you said, you know, I can't even imagine trying to learn a second language. Like I'm not even going to try just because right, I know. right. But at that age, even when we've had children come in and they've been doing um, like baby sign classes and they can mm-hmm. sign by three years old. And mm-hmm. I'm like, oh my goodness, it's, I've been learning sign language for 10 years and I'm getting that, but these come in at three and they've got it so much more. Like you say, the brain is just, it can just mold so easy at that age and learn so many new things. For sure. And while we're talking about sign language, that it really is an early for those kids that are not talking yet. That really is a great way to start exposing them to language because a lot of kids are able to sign with their hands before they can really articulate their mouth and move, make those movements that are really complex for speech. Um, And so like my son had 50 signs, I think, by the time he was 14 months old. And, um, then he started talking. So we stopped with the signs, but he learned all of those signs that he had. He learned all of those words very quickly. Um, and I really think that that kind of gave him a head start with his language development because he did have so many communicative skills at an early age that he wouldn't have been able to have without knowing those signs. That is amazing to learn all those signs at such a young age, but it just goes to show as well that it really is that easy for that early intervention to have such a huge impact on them as well going forward, especially like you say, with that language development. Mm -hmm. So while we're on this topic, I know it's a little bit in between, but it's something that I get asked about all the time. And that is how are girls diagnosed with autism less than boys? Is it the fact that simply less girls are diagnosed and less girls are autistic or do their traits of autism appear differently and it's harder to diagnose? 
Sure. So there's not a real like research-based answer for what the difference is. I think it is possible that more boys have autism than girls, but you know, I really, I kind of go back and forth on this because, um, the reason why there is significantly more boys than girls is because girls do present differently. And so probably people have heard of masking and girls are just, I really attribute this to social motivation. So they want friends. They want to have those interactions and they are very good imitators. And so they study the popular girls or they study the, the girls who have a lot of friends and they are great at imitating them. Um, and so when you see these girls playing on the playground, they're with a group, whereas the boys might be kind of off on their own. <laughs> the girls are going to be with the group and they're not going to be doing those things that are considered strange because they've really have observed those other girls. And so they, um, they really look like they're interacting. And so they don't get caught by teachers. They don't get caught by parents because they have friends. They talk about their friends. When you look at them playing, they look like they're playing. But then when you really analyze how they're playing with their friends, you see that it's more following the other girls. Um, sometimes you see them being a little bit more bossy. And so they try to be like the other girls, but it comes off as bossy. And so the girls don't really consider her as their friend, even though she's still following along with them. Um, so really, they're really good at masking. Um, they're usually really responsive. So when you ask them questions, they answer. And then a good way to see it is, are they really initiating a variety of conversation or a variety of social interactions? That's how I like to tease girls out a little bit more, um, is really look for how they're initiating those interactions with others. That was perfect. And like you say, it's so hard because it's a question that comes up all the time. And like you say, there's just not a huge amount of solid research done on it. And I do believe that they are very good at masking. Very good. Mm -hmm. I've seen, you know, I've seen obviously all girls on different parts of the spectrum and some you can clearly see it and others you've got to really look for it because they can be so good. I've had girls come in who are full of imaginative play and they'll sit there and play mm -hmm. as a group and it's only when you sit next to them and really analyze what they're doing that you can see they're not playing with they're just right. sat there playing near where they think they should be they're very good at that yeah or you might see their their amazing creative play but then they're kind of stick into that same play scenario repetitively. And so you, you might see some really great skills and then come back 20 minutes later or the next day. And it's kind of the same thing. And so you're like, Oh, okay. So that did look really good the first time that I saw you, but now that we're coming back, it's really similar. Um, and so, yeah, their repetitive behaviors are a little bit different than boys. Um, it's not quite as clear. They hide it a lot better. Um, or girls are really interested in very typical girl things. So a lot of times, you know, you see the boys who really like trains or they really like letters and then they'll stick to that. So when you really like trains and letters in first grade, it's a little bit atypical. 
girls tend to really like animals or lip gloss and nail polish. And that's appropriate to like at four years. That's still appropriate to really like at seven and eight years, you know? And so some of their restricted interests are just, they're just so typical. It's such a hard, it's so hard to find that line between what, how is, how much is too much and how much is typical. Definitely. Like you say, that fine line Oh my gosh, it's so hard, isn't it? It really is. There's no just sit there and find it out. It's just such a hard line to sort of assess. And you really have to give a lot of attention to detail, I feel, with all of our students, but especially the girls. Right. So our last question, and this is something I know you feel, I think you feel strongly about, I do. And that is talking about some things that people confuse with autism. And like I touched on earlier on in this podcast, where over the years working with children diagnosed with autism, I've had all sorts of things thrown at me that they think every autistic child does. And that's just autism. And I think sometimes TV shows have a little bit to do with it. Stuff you mm-hmm. see on Facebook and social media, especially, um, I don't know if you've watched the series, The Good Doctor. And now all of a sudden, I've seen some of it. It is, you know, I love it. It's great. But since that come out, Every person I speak to thinks that every individual with autism has this amazing memory. And I'm trying to explain to them, and it's so hard, but what Mm -hmm. are some of the things that you feel people confuse with autism? Sure. So I would say a big one would be eye contact. People really don't know what eye contact is. And so a lot of times you'll see... um, People who, and I was totally guilty of this before I started doing evaluations where I think a child is making good eye contact when they're really not. Um, And so we really want to look at how they're using eye contact and are they um, making eye contact when they're asking for something or when they're trying to show you something or when they're gesturing. And it's not like a present or absent kind of behavior. And a lot of people think of it like that. Um, And so That would be one of the big ones is people think that autism means no eye contact. And I will tell you, 95% of people on the spectrum will make eye contact at some point. That was one of the things I was told when I first went into um, sort of the autism field. But also, I do believe autism isn't as different as a lot of people think. What are your thoughts I say that all the time. Autism is not that different. And I really feel like if you are familiar with autism, you will question almost every single child that you have ever met because they will all do something that is a little bit quirky. And so it's really hard for a lot of people to tease apart quirky from typical from atypical. Um, And just the line is so fine, you know, so we hear, I remember I was um, with my mom and there was a little boy that we saw and I was like, oh, I think he's on the spectrum. And he wasn't, he wasn't that atypical, you know, and my mom was like, no, he's not. And I was like, mom, you don't know what you're talking about, you know, and then she was like, oh, but he came and gave you a hug, (laughs) you know, and so I'm like, what? So first of all, people who have autism give people hugs. (laughs) That's not a thing. But then second of all, he came and gave me a hug, but he didn't know who I was. So really, that wasn't appropriate. (laughs) You know, so something that she saw as a strength, I was like, well, that was one of the reasons why I thought he was a little bit different in the first place. Um, 
you know, so definitely the, the covers their ears or they always flap. That is just not true. So many kids don't flap. Um, so many kids do make eye contact. So many kids, um, can have high, high, high language abilities and, um, they appear to have conversations with you. They can appear to be interested in a lot of things when really those restricted interests are still present. It's just so hard to tease apart because I would, uh, gosh, I say this all the time, but autism is just not that different. Definitely. I a hundred percent agree. And like you say, you know, your mother thought that was Totally fine. You know, there was no sort of flags for autism for her. But when you're in sort of the thick of it and you're learning this field, like you say, instantly you were able to pick out so many different reasons just why that individual may have been on the spectrum. But like you say, you know, just because they have autism doesn't mean they're not going to give hugs. They're not going to have language. Like you say, everyone's different. And it's just human nature, isn't it? We're all different. We all have different quirks as well. I'm sure you have a quirk that I don't have and I have a quirk that you don't have, but right, that, definitely. Yeah, that doesn't make us, you know, any really different than any other person. Everyone's got something. Mhm. Mhm. For sure. And then when we talk about autism, you know, we we just really what I like to tell parents is that it means is that they just need a little bit additional support. Sometimes they need a lot of support. Sometimes they just need a little bit of support or they might need some accommodations. We might need to provide them with some sensory output um, or sensory input to kind of help them control themselves. So it's not, it doesn't necessarily mean that they don't, you know, like most people on the spectrum, I would say need some kind of support. Um, whereas like I have my quirks and I don't really need support for my quirks because they don't impact me on a regular basis. Um, but usually autism does mean that there is support. So when people say things like, oh, everybody has autism, I feel like that kind of takes away from the, the needs that people who are autistic actually have. And so I don't really like that, but I do like to say everybody's different. Everybody has strange things that they do. Um, I always tell my kids weird is a good thing because if you weren't weird, that would make you just like everybody else. And that would make you really boring. So I want you to be different. I want you to be you. And that is totally okay. Um, and so that really helps with my kids, my neurotypical kids. I have a neurodivergent child, um, but also my kids at school, we talk about that. And I think that really gives the kids who really feel different, that gives them some power of, oh, I'm different and it's okay. Definitely. And like you say, I see all too often where people are saying now everyone has autism or everyone has a little bit of autism in them. And I just think it really takes away, like you say, from our students and, children, any individual with autism, I think it takes away that little bit of something as well, because, you know, not everyone has, you can't, you can't have a little bit of autism. Not everyone has autism. Right. And you might have a characteristic, like one from one area, you know, so like my son does some really strange sensory things and gosh, to my total dislike, he hates the beach. (laughs) He hates the sand. Um, (laughs) You know, so I could, I could, somebody might say, oh, he's a little bit autistic, but I'm like, but he doesn't have the struggles in the other areas. You know, remember autism is three key areas. And so if you have differences in one area, that means you do not have autism because you only have that difference in one area. So you're not a little bit autistic. You have a quirk, you have a sensory difference, you know? Um, But it doesn't mean that you need support because of your quirk or because of your difference. 
definitely. And I think that's a perfect way to look at that as well and to really celebrate all our differences as well. But this has been amazing, Andy. I've taken up so much of your time because I love picking your brain and finding out all the things. But before you go today, is there one thing that you would like the audience to take away from this episode, whether it be about autism, assessments, evaluation, what would be your one takeaway? So I would say, do not be afraid of the diagnosis. I know it sounds scary. I know you probably don't know um, what all it means and you're not quite, a lot of people just aren't quite ready to accept it, but the autism diagnosis or really any diagnosis, it's not going to change who your child is. It might change how you look at the needs that they might have, or it might help you understand why they struggle when they struggle, but it's not going to change your child. It's not changing how they're going to act or what they're going to do. It's not going to change their future even. And I think a lot of people are afraid like, oh, it's going to mean that they can't have a job. They can't get married. And that is not what any diagnosis means. So it's not changing your child. It's just giving us a word to help better understand them, to better describe them. Definitely. And like you say, just a better way to support them and their individual needs as well. Mm -hmm. So this has been amazing, Andy. Thank you so much. Now, I know my audience are probably going to be like me and stalking you now on all things (laughs) autism and assessments. I know you're on Instagram as Mrs. Speechy P. Yes. Is there anywhere else we can find you as well? Yeah, I am am actually also on Facebook and that is where my biggest audience is surprisingly. Um, But Facebook and Instagram, both on there as Miss BGP, I would definitely recommend anybody who's going through an autism assessment or maybe concerned about their child on my Instagram story highlights. I have videos of my favorite kids. They're my best friend's sons who are both on the autism spectrum, um, videos of them playing and then me analyzing their behavior. Um, so that's super helpful for parents to see. It's really helpful for even teachers or other SLPs to see so that you can see what I see when I'm doing evaluations to know kind of what I'm looking for and maybe start interpreting things a little bit differently. Um, you can see their strengths. Um, so I think that that is a huge, um, just great thing to use as a tool. Um, highly recommend that. Definitely. I watched a few of those stories and they are the sweetest kids and it was great. <laughs> I love them. I love them. And their mom is so sweet. She's done interviews with me. So if you are having all of those feelings that I kind of talked about earlier, um, she talks about all of her feelings. She is so open and so honest. And I just love how raw that conversation is. And I've had such great feedback from other parents just thanking her for letting us see her boys and to hear her experiences. Um, and so I think that is just such a great thing for parents to be able to have. And I'm so grateful for her for sharing them with us. It really is. And honestly, it's so amazing to watch. And just for everyone to sort of come together as well and realize they're not alone, understand different feelings. But like you say, it was also super helpful for me in the education world as well to watch you analyze the two children as well and really hear your thoughts and your ways behind things, the way of your thinking. It was really eye-opening. And I'll link all of those in the show notes for people to go over because I do recommend watching those. 
Awesome. Yes. Yes. And I, and what I'll say, what I say over and over with them is they have strengths, <laughs> you know, and I love pointing those out because I think a lot of times people think, oh, well, kids on the spectrum just don't have any strengths. And that is so not true. They have so many strengths. They are very smart. They are very social even. Um, and they're talking and interacting. And so I love being able to point that out and then be able to go into, but then also this and this and this, you know, see these characteristics here. Definitely. And I love that approach you have as well. And like you say, everyone has different strengths and, but it's really nice to see the strengths and then you give in other comments to look deeper into what you're seeing as well. Not just to see, um, like, you know, a child playing with a train, you really go more in depth and really analyze that and talk about that and look for those cues for people as well. Mm-hmm. I think, yeah. And I'm, I'm so happy that so many people have said, oh, this is so helpful. And so I'm so glad to just to be able to help. And because I feel like it just helps spread awareness and knowledge and acceptance of autism. It really does. And like you say, you know, it is growing a lot more now. People are talking about it a lot more and having those videos can be so helpful for people to see in action as well, because it's one thing reading about it on Google and any website that people go on, but it's a whole other thing to see you doing that on the videos with the children, being able to see it happen. Yes, definitely. Thank you so much for your time today, Andy. I'm going to link all those in the show notes for everyone to find you. But thank you so much. It was an amazing episode. You are so welcome. That was fun. Thank you so much for tuning in to today's podcast episode with Andy Putt, who specializes in autism assessments and evaluations. I hope that you have found this episode today really helpful for learning more about autism, the early signs of autism, as well as assessments, evaluations, and the diagnosis process. I would love if you had a spare couple of minutes just to head over and leave us some feedback on this podcast for what you think about it. Thank you for listening, and I'll speak to you again soon.